0: Welcome to the Fika with Friends podcast. I'm your host, Tasmin Lofthouse, and I'm a freelance copywriter, content marketer, and your business best friend. Just like the Swedish tradition of Fika, the Fika with Friends podcast is your chance to step away from work and be present in the moment as you find clarity, purpose, and success for the future. So pop the kettle on and enjoy some cake as we chat about all the ways you can grow and shine in every avenue of life as a business owner, entrepreneur, or leader. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Lucy Nichol. Lucy is a brilliant author who's published five fantastic books across a range of fiction and nonfiction. She's also a freelance comms and copywriting specialist where she's written for a number of national media titles and she's helped her clients get their stories heard. She's also passionate about mental health and she's worked closely with several mental health organizations which is how we met. That's kind of how our story began. So thank you for coming on. No, it's nice to
1: be invited on and it's really nice to catch up because it's been a little while. Yeah,
0: I'm really looking forward to catching up. (laughs) I do this podcast and I invite people who I think have really interesting stories to share and who I think people can learn from but I also do it selfishly to be like, do you know what? I'm going to schedule some time to talk to this person because I like them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I could probably do with inviting my friends from my non-business life onto the podcast. Because there's so many times where people try and put a date in the diary to meet up and it doesn't happen. Whereas I'm like, so come on the podcast, then we'll catch up. <laughs> oh, I know. Do you know, it's terrible, isn't it?
1: Because I've got so many friends that I do see when we arrange to meet up to work. Yeah. And we should be seeing each other just to chat on and do stuff. It's nice to have somebody to co-work with, especially when you're a freelancer, but you're always more likely to commit when there's a work element. I don't know if it's a guilt thing.
0: I bet it is. I bet it is that guilt of like, oh my god, I need to do it, like it's in the diary. One of my old clients and also like a really good friend, she said to me how are we like book in like a work meeting and we'll book in like client work, we also need to book in Joy, like, be like, do you know what? I'm going to go to the coffee shop and I'm going to go meet this friend at 11 a.m. Yeah. Like, you have to book it in to make it happen.
1: 100%. Yes. And it has to not be penciled,
0: it has to be Sharpie penned in there. My friend Abby, who was on the podcast, she'll know our nightmare nightwear for this. There's like a local creative meetup that happens and it sounds amazing every month. And she'll text me, like, are you going to come? And I'll text, but like, yeah, definitely. Sounds brilliant. I won't get my ticket. I'll then book in like consulting calls and stuff with yeah. clients. And the day before she'd be like, So are you coming? And I'm like, oh no, yeah. I'm not.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do that a lot.
0: Yeah. So need to get the Sharpie out and need to like yeah. commit to these things, <laughs> as we would for work. So speaking about your work, obviously when we met, you had your PR hat on, but things have changed since then. Obviously, you've always been an author, you've always been a writer, and that's always rang true through all your work. When did that journey begin? Like, Have you always been a writer at heart, back to when you were like a little kid? Is it something where you've always thought you want to do it, or is it something that just came around later?
1: I don't know. I always enjoyed doing it. I think there's a self-esteem issue with writing, and I think there's this idea, especially when you're younger, that to be a good writer, you've got to know every word that exists in the dictionary and be able to use it intellectually and intelligently. I probably didn't use those words correctly there. (laughs) I always enjoyed doing it, but never thought I would do it. And then I think it was about 2012, I, for a little bit of fun, did um, an online creative writing course and really enjoyed it. And then I started blogging in 2016. And that was relating to my mental health. And it was because I'd worked with lots of people who had shared their stories because I'd worked in charities and they'd shared their stories and I kind of thought, well, we're talking about breaking stigma i shouldn't be ashamed to share my story so i started writing about having an anxiety disorder and panic attacks and then i realized that i was really enjoying writing it it wasn't just cathartic in terms of getting those feelings and experiences out and onto a page and opening up about them it was also really fun crafting different ways of describing them and using a bit of humor and throwing in a bit of nostalgia and I was approached by a small press called Trigger, and they published my first book, which called A Series of Unfortunate Stereotypes, which was kind of part memoir, part ranting about stigma really. Um, And then after I'd written that, I thought, I don't really know that I've got anything else to say from a personal experience point of view, and thought, well, there's nothing stopping me from writing fiction. I thought a fiction writer had to be this special kind of person, and I didn't tick whatever magical boxes you had to tick to be this special magical person. So I just thought, I'm just going to give it a go because why not? And I absolutely loved it because I realised that there were no bounds there. I could just write whatever I wanted, go wherever I wanted, be whoever I wanted. It was just so much fun. So that's where it all began.
0: That's amazing. Like from both sides. My writing journey started as a kid, like writing for fun as you do. But then it established itself as a blog like yourself. And it is, it's a really great outlet for like your emotions and understanding yeah. your thoughts, but also the creativity. And yeah. I love that off the back of your blog, you obviously then got an opportunity to write something that breaks that stigma and it helps other people. Mm. That's amazing.
1: So I've been writing the blog and before I wrote the book, I was asked to write something for Sarah Millican's Standard Issue magazine, which I was a massive fan of. So I was so excited because it was just these really brilliant, honest, funny women writing about life experiences and opinions on shit was going on in the world. And you know, it was just great because it was for women, but it wasn't about how to please your partner in bed or how to get the perfect bikini body. And so I really liked it because I think often when you pick up something like your traditional woman's mag, you can get imposter syndrome because you don't look like any of the people you see in it. Whereas with standard issue, I could totally relate to some of the things that were being talked about. So I started writing a column, a fortnightly column for Standard Issue, which involved interviewing people who had experienced a mental health problem and putting them in a box to show that you can't put them in a box, if that makes sense. Because I wasn't putting them in a mental health box. I was putting them in a, a, a comedian or an actor or a hipster or a teacher talking about them through their occupation and their personalities. But, oh, by the way, they have been experiencing... significant mental health problem and that is separate to their personality that was lots of fun because i was able to be quite humorous with it so yeah i really enjoyed that and then that went on to writing for lots of different national titles
0: as well amazing yeah i think that's really nice that column idea there's someone who looks just like you does the things you do enjoys the things you do and they experience this somebody like a friend of mine paul who is is he a hit
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he was just because he's way cooler than me, but he would have panic attacks, and you know you'd see him on a dance floor or you'd see him like he'd be happy filming himself, but oh God, I remember when Vine first came out. Do you remember
0: Vine? I think I learned about Vine after it was like gone and dead. Uh, but I know, I know what it is. yeah, I used to be well, a social media manager and then like Vine. Vine? Uh. <laughs> he was always at the forefront and he was always pointing the camera like, God,
1: get that camera away from us. And he was totally cool about it. So I thought it was interesting looking at people who I knew or who I'd come across through reading stuff they'd done or seeing them perform or whatever. And just showing the contrast of what you expect somebody with anxiety to be like, you know, oh, quiet and fearful and shy and scared of the world. So that was really important to me. Yeah, which is like, they're just another human being. That's hmm. it.
0: <laughs> really kick-ass human beings. Yeah. I think that's a really important. Thing. Absolutely. Meeting those people and having those conversations. Do you think that helped you when it came to being like, hey, do you know what? I can write fiction. Because it made you kind of see that you don't have to be a certain way. You don't have to be this perfect image. You can be who you are and still chase your goals and go after things.
1: Well, I do struggle with imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, as we both know from our friend and colleague, Ruth Cooper Dixon, that it's not a syndrome because there is nothing inherently wrong with you. It is an experience. But I experience imposter phenomenon. I think I can definitely say that. I think it's one thing when you look at other people, it's hard to apply that to yourself. And oh my God, even when I started writing about my own experience of anxiety it was so funny, actually, because one night I was reading this book, how to survive the end of the world when it's all in your own head by Aaron Gillies, aka technically wrong. And we follow each other on Twitter. Not that I'm on there that much anymore. And I put that I was reading this fabulous book about anxiety. It was very funny. It was some really interesting experiences about anxiety. It's a great book, but I feel like my experiences aren't enough to write about. Yeah. And what was really funny was that I hadn't mentioned the book or the author. But he actually replied and said, "Oh, how funny! I've just had a book out this week, and I feel like an imposter for writing about anxiety." And I was like, "This bloody book that I'm reading!" (laughs) So it was just like this whole mess of imposter syndrome meeting, which I thought was really funny because I think we all get it. I think it's not just for people who have an anxiety disorder. Is what we're talking about. I have an anxiety disorder. He clearly does. He was talking about panic attacks, etc. I think imposter syndrome isn't just linked to those of us with an anxiety disorder. I think lots and lots and lots of people experience it. And I think that's, there's a self-esteem and a health issue, but I think it's a societal thing as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think the only way to break it down is, like you said, like be open about it, talk about it, so that when you are going through that moment of imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, you can look out to others and be like, hey, this person who I really admire, they have those thoughts and they have those experiences as well. so. You can try and use that to quieten those imposter thoughts and try and be like, no, do you know what? Like, I appreciate you trying to keep me safe and look after me, but I can still do this. Yeah. But I imagine with anxiety, that heightens that experience and makes it harder for you as well.
1: Even though I experience both, in some ways the two things aren't always connected, I think. I mean, we're all unique, aren't we? And I think that I can come across as really confident Although I couldn't in my youth, certainly now, I'm quite comfortable speaking on stage in front of an audience, etc. But if I have to walk into a room and make small talk with a bunch of people, oh, my God, I just break out in a sweat. I absolutely hate it. And I don't know whether that's to do with like the art of small talk or if it's a self-esteem issue. Because when you're put into a formal situation, you are on a stage, you are here to deliver this. These people are here to listen. But going into a room to make small talk, you feel like you're imposing yourself on someone.
0: I'm like smiling and nodding because I can fully relate to this. Put me on a stage, I can deliver whatever. Put me on a stage with nothing to talk about, but tell me something random. and I'll talk about it, I'll do it. But tell me I've got to go to a small, intimate networking event. And the night before, I'll be up thinking, do I go up to someone and say, hi, how are you? Like, yeah. what, what what can I ask them? Like, what do I say? And I'll, like, mull over every tiny detail. And then when I'm in that room, fingertips sweating. Yeah, me. yeah. And, like, stood there in the middle. Can I just go over to that group? What's the consensus? Like, what's the rule? Like, what are you allowed to do here? Yeah. And it is. It's kind of weird, isn't it, that you can be confident in certain situations and not in others
1: I got asked the other day if I ever deliver writing classes creative writing I was like I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that and I've had five books published I mean two of them I published myself and again there's a bit of self-stigma they'd sold brilliantly and yet I'm still like but I published them
0: yeah I- that ca- caveat should be like and I published them myself how amazing is that I'm not like dampening it and being like oh but I did it myself. No, heck no. I did that myself. How amazing is that? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to
1: try and remember that and try and do that instead of but it's and. But I think the writing community is really, really supportive and I've met loads of great people. And so when I was putting my first novel out, which I did put out myself, and I was really nervous. Oh, fuck.
0: People are going to hate this.
1: They're going to give me really shit reviews. Like this is going to be awful. I just found this really generous and supportive writing community. And- And I met one of them in real life the other day. And she's from down south and she's mint and she's called Steffi Chapman. So I read her books, everyone. She writes rom-com. They're brilliant. And we got to meet in person. It was lovely when we realized how long we'd kind of known each other through our online world was quite a few years. and we'd thrown ideas around with each other about our book projects and supported each other, which was really, really nice. I mean, she's just a great example of writers supporting writers. And it is a genuinely lovely community.
0: Yeah, that is something I wanted to ask you about was I imagine that to be an author, you have to have quite thick skin. Like you have to be able to like handle that rejection from publishing houses. If you are trying to go down the traditional route, Mm. you have to handle negative feedback, whether that's coming from editors, readers, whoever. And then also those quiet periods in between writing projects.
1: Yeah. So what do
0: you think helps with that? Would you say it is making sure you have that community around you? or Yeah. So I think having that community
1: around you, because, you know, we can joke about it. And I think when I've just faced up head on and put it out, I remember getting my first one star review and it actually said, this is the worst book I've ever read. It was so like, if I could get my money back, I would. I just thought I've got to laugh. If I don't laugh, it'll destroy me because, This is going to be one of many because you're going to get them. And uh, I actually put it out on Twitter and ended up with a few book sales from it.
0: Have you seen the, I can't remember what it's called, but the National Parks Review account? They make prints now. I think it started as like an Instagram account. But essentially, you know, like the National Parks in America, they will publish negative reviews. So like Yosemite, they'll publish a review that's like, I came here, but it's just a bunch of big rocks. What the hell? Why did I come here? <laughs> like, you have to laugh at it, right? You have to laugh at that rather than internalizing it and taking it on board. Oh, yeah, because there are some absolute gems out there.
1: I can't take credit for discovering this review. I think it must be something another author had shared on Twitter or something. And it was of pride and prejudice. And it said, rubbish, just a bunch of posh people going to each other's houses for a
0: chat. <laughs> Essentially, it is. Yeah, like you're not wrong. Like that is that is the book summary. Like if we were to just distill it down to one sentence, you pretty much nailed it. (laughs) But yeah,
1: also the other thing that I do that
0: helps. So a lot of authors stay
1: away from like Goodreads, which can be really, really harsh. And you've got to be really careful not to take it personally because we've probably gone on and said, you know, on social media and totally slagged off a, a movie that we've watched. And there are so many people behind that, so many individuals, you know, somebody's performance, somebody's direction, somebody's idea, somebody's writing. So you're going to get that with books, but it feels more personal because it's your name. Yeah, you've worked with editors and stuff. It does feel really personal, but sometimes a little trick that I do, which I find quite fun, is if I get a bad review, I go on to the Goodreads review profile and look at what else they've reviewed and look at what else has had a one or two star from them and sometimes you'll find that they've like one starred Shakespeare and you're like wow yeah
0: and even he's not good enough like
1: (laughs) i have got no chance it just reminds you that you shouldn't take it personally because this is just somebody else's personal experience of your book and it could have chimed badly with them for lots of reasons whether that's the style whether that's the plot whether that's the characters you know sometimes they hate the characters i read one review i can't remember whose book it was i think it was a very famous author because i was doing that thing who else has had a bad review and somebody said they hated the character so much i just hate her i just want terrible things to happen to her (laughs)
0: like oh wow you can get quite invested in the story so i can see but like to put it out there like it must really affect you strongly. But maybe yeah. that's a good thing. If your book's having such a strong effect on someone, exactly. And <laughs> still that, doing its job.
1: I, I was at a book club the other night in Durham and somebody asked why, I won't go into detail because it's a spoiler, it's about my book, No Worries If Not, but why I'd let one of the characters off so lightly. Because he said, I was really angry with you. I was really angry and I want to know why you did it. So I talked about why I did it because I did have a very good reason. But it could totally destroy the experience of reading for somebody
0: when they think why on earth this is not what I expected to happen yeah I guess you don't have that like intimate Q&A or an insight into like the author's thought process because when you're writing a book you're not just writing the words on that page are you like you're building a world yeah so there's so much more in it yeah
1: but also even if I do have a reason for doing something that the reader doesn't like it's still the reader's experience and if that has upset the reader then that is absolutely fair enough. And
0: like book two, you're like, don't worry, they're back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know when you do things like put your characters through hell and back, you sometimes feel really bad for them and you think, oh God. And then you feel bad for the reader who's gotta go through it with them. Sounds like an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> but I do think that it's just it's personal. So my way of looking at it now is I'm like, Marmite. People yeah. either love it. They hate it, or sometimes they just like a little bit on their toast. And that's fine. (laughs) That's absolutely fine. Because if I was just beige or vanilla, that'd be really boring. And I always compare it to when I was younger. If my parents liked Nirvana and Babes in Toyland, they wouldn't have been half as appealing to me. So we're all different. And that's yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That would have tainted your favorite bands, and you don't want that. (laughs) so you touched on the latest book, No Worries If Not. And that book essentially is about one woman, Charlotte, her mission to break up with the word sorry and to stop being a people pleaser. So in Charlotte's experience, she would probably be bawling her eyes out, end of the world over getting a one-star review and someone thinking that she isn't good enough or they didn't like the way she wrote something. What inspired the idea for the book? it's something we all do
1: isn't it and i think it's very much linked to mm-hmm. imposter syndrome imposter phenomenon sorry yeah. ruth
0: <laughs> um, I, like caveat that the whole way through I'm like ruth, yeah. sorry phenomenon
1: <laughs> i am a over apologizer a chronic apologizer mm-hmm. and i really do think it links to imposter phenomenon it's being in a situation where you feel that you're either an irritant or that you're not worthy or you know and funnily enough, the first scene that I wrote for it isn't at the start of the book. It was actually based on my experience having a smear test <laughs> and saying, I think I have a tilted cervix. Sorry. And when she said, Oh, and she was like, Most of them are, dear. It's where I go in there and find one waving at me. So I just embellished that by saying, I swear I go in there and find one waving at me, wearing a party hat. So I have told my nurse there's a scene based on <laughs> I
0: like Thank you. You have you in it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> And it made me think, oh, my God, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever apologized for. And it is literally like apologizing for being a woman. I think everyone apologizes. Well, not everyone, whatever your background, whatever your gender. I think there are people who apologize too yeah. much. I do think that there are certain things that do cause say women to apologize more or, you know, and there's, there's it, it's intersectional as well. I think, you know, so how might somebody behave if they've struggled in the past with sexual identity, for example, if they've been bullied, how does that impact them? Do they feel worthy of taking up space? How does race impact? And I think there are so many structures and systems in place that are inherent in society that has created this issue of over apologising or feeling like an imposter and there are people who take advantage of that as well.
0: Yeah absolutely, I think there's truth in that, the fact that people from underrepresented, marginalised groups Women from being raised as girls that are all soft and pretty mm. and perfect and mm. they never do anything wrong or out brash, that causes you to then over apologize and feel like you can't take up that space. So I think there is truth in what you're saying there. And mm. when I shared that I was reading your book, which I devoured it in like one weekend, oh. but when I shared that I was reading it and kind of gave that little backstory that it's about a woman breaking up with the word sorry, a lot of women mm. replied saying I need to buy that book like it's, that's gone on my wish list so yeah. there is that connection as well where people read it and see themselves in it I know I was reading it and going yep yeah, I can relate to this I'm really tentative and I'm writing emails I write an email really tentatively then I have to go through it and get rid of the word just get rid of yeah. if that's okay with you get yeah. rid of, like if you want I have to brush over whatever I've written and then be like okay yeah now I'll send it
1: yeah, because we're being apologetic without using the word sorry. And I think that's where no worries if not comes in. It's like giving people a get out clause, kind of saying this isn't worthy. So feel free to say no. Yeah. Rather than selling it, you're inviting a friend to do something nice with you to spend time together Go and you know, I don't know, go to a movie or go out for dinner or whatever and but no worries if not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's actually really like profound. And it's something from the book has stuck with me is that now when like making plans with people, I will check in with what I'm doing and what I'm saying. Mm. So I text a friend recently asking him if he wanted to do something. And instead of just saying what I wanted to do and putting that forward, I put forward like a couple of options. But then before hitting send, I scrubbed it out because why am I giving them a second option? Yeah. If, if they choose that one, I'm going to be disappointed. You're setting yourself up for disappointment by going, no, whereas if not, whereas yeah. you could just go, hey, here's what I want to do. Do you want to do it? Yeah,
1: I do it in certain situations. I think in other situations I've always been, I think my husband thinks I've sometimes been a little bit too bold because I remember when we were going through a restructure at work one time and it was awful because a few people got made redundant. So it was really harsh and you were turning up to find out if, you still had a job, basically. And I turned up and was told that I had a job, but it wasn't the one that I went for. It was the same level in everything. So I wasn't losing out on money. I still had the security, but I was just like, but why is he not discussing the other job with me? So I actually said, but I want the other job. I'm really good at it. That's what I want to do. And it took a bit of persuading, (laughs) but I did it in the end. So I do think that whilst I am overly apologetic in some ways and others, when I look back, I think I've been quite forward about what I think I want or need or deserve. Like I remember asking my boss years and years and years ago for an appraisal because I wanted to ask for a pay (laughs) rise. He actually said to me, well, you're a crap administrator, (laughs) but I think you've got potential for sales given this situation. So I'll give you a pay rise, but you're going to have to earn it by doing some sales work, which I did. And I loved it early so, in very back. early in my career. But I think also when you do speak out about stuff, whether it's what you think you want or need, whether it's in the workplace or whatever, I think as a woman, sometimes it is received differently. I think it can be received as meddling or being troublemaking or being aggressive. Yeah, I sometimes think if a man said the same thing it wouldn't be taken that way and I've certainly found myself speaking out about things that I've disagreed with and getting a slap wrist for it being unprofessional for challenging something.
0: No I absolutely agree I think you're right people pleasing is circumstantial it shows up when it maybe needs to for you in that moment I will people please and I will be tentative but I will also be very bold and stick to my guns on things mm. um, And I think that final thing you said about men not always liking a woman who will stand up and speak her mind is something that I've come up against in past work experiences where I have worked in a very negative male dominated work culture Mm. where I've then stepped in as a young woman, early 20s, in a leadership position, Mm -hmm. having to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. And they have really kicked out at it, either directly by speaking their mind, telling me what they think, or indirectly by not turning up to meetings. So like, I would plan a meeting for like 10am and they would roll into work at 12pm. Yeah. Just to like kind of undermine my my authority and like not respect me. I definitely think that can
1: happen. But I also think it's interesting because you can be in the same workplace and have a different dynamic. So with me, I think I've always felt quite confident in my work, but not socially. So I've never been socially confident in a workplace, never. And so peer to peer, I am not good. And I'm very, if you don't mind, da, I don't know if that's how I come across. I think I can come across as a bit focused and a bit just thinking about my own work and maybe not being as generous, thinking about other people, that's maybe something I need to work on. But I inside have this terrible anxiety about my peers don't like me. I'm not popular. Then I can stand up and give a meeting to the board. So it's funny, isn't it? It's different dynamics, different situations. It's like when cats, I've got three cats, one of them fights with the other. And there's always one that is the submissive one food, it's a different situation. Yeah. The role reversal. So it's just whatever circumstance you're in.
0: I know you've had your fair share of negative workspaces. You've faced bullying in the workspace and had some really tough times. How does that compare now to working for yourself and not having to put up with those negative work cultures or even those peer relationships where you feel like you're tiptoeing around and that's giving you anxiety? It's great now. Whilst at the end of the day.
1: I have to make a living. And that's quite frightening as a freelancer, isn't yeah. it? It's never like steady, but then it never is anyway, even if you're employed. I mean, how many restructures and things that workplace I've worked have been through is unreal. But the reason why there is bullying in the workplace isn't because the person being bullied isn't strong. It's because of the power dynamic. It's because often the person, I mean, it's sometimes peer to peer or even somebody bullying their line manager. But in my experience, it was people who are right at the top. And I obviously won't say where there were men. And the power dynamic meant I felt completely and utterly trapped and tiny and defenseless. Because I needed to pay a mortgage and my entire income was based on them not pushing me out. So it was awful. Whereas I think as a freelancer, because you're working on a few different things, I've been so lucky. Everyone I've worked with has been great. Since I've been freelancing, I've loved everyone that I've worked with. So I've been so, so lucky. But if there was somebody who I didn't click with and who I felt was treating me badly, if I walked away, it would be a hit, but it wouldn't be a 100% hit. Yeah. So it eases things up a bit. So I've been in situations before where I've maybe not got on well with somebody, a line manager, and we've had a real clash of personality. Sometimes that happens. And that's, that's difficult, but it's nobody's fault. You just have two different ways of working, two different personalities. And I think that's fine. Yeah. When it's bullying, I think even if you're being gaslighted, it's very really you know, you're being bullied because you know that you can't do anything, you can't reason, you can't.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say like a clash of personalities you can find a workaround, you can find a way to work together. But if you're being bullied, there is nothing. Like I've been bullied in a couple of jobs (laughs) in two different situations. One was in that job where there was a man who didn't like the fact he was having to report to a woman. And another was a female line manager for whatever reason. And in the case of the female manager, I went to HR and they'd bullied somebody else as well to the point where this person would be in tears and they ended up leaving the job. And I'd kind of explained about this person and their response was, there's nothing we can do about a bad attitude. Mm-hmm. And like when you're at that point with bullying where you've tried everything, you can't do anything, and the organisation isn't doing anything, let yeah. you, say you end up feeling trapped if you rely on that. Whereas with freelancing, you have that choice to go, do you know what? This isn't working for me, so... As much as like, maybe I'm going to take a little bit of a hit and that's going to be scary. I value myself more than to put up with this.
1: Yeah. And I do think that there are situations where, like we were talking about personality clashes and stuff. Sometimes you don't want to work around that. It's better to just find something new and it's still nobody's fault. Sometimes the organisation you're working for or the role, the function that you're working in isn't a good fit for you. That's okay. It's not great at the time. It's difficult, but you might decide the best thing is to move on. But yeah, bullying is a completely different thing. And I think it's when it happens and there is a power dynamic, it's very difficult. And in No Worries If Not, I didn't explore. I mean, it kind of is bullying, but it's in a different way. So something I explored was sexual harassment. Yeah, Uh, so he's
0: kind of like holding his power over her, isn't he?
1: He is, yeah. Trying to get her to go out on a date with, well, he's not calling it a date, but come out for a drink, come out for a glass of wine with me and we can talk about your possible promotion. You know, it's it's power dynamic stuff. And I was even talking about this the other day because as 17 on work experience, I remember a much older man saying to me when I was on my own with him, don't tell anyone, but I'll take you out one night next week. Again, it's a power dynamic of the shy girl on a couple of weeks work experience. And you're saying that, how does she react? I'm really pleased that I went to the director and said, I can't work with that man. I didn't dare say exactly why, but I was able to say something.
0: That kind of makes you feel really happy for you that at the age of 17, you felt you could approach that director and tell them that. Because I know there's a lot of women who will have similar experiences I think the fact that you felt you could go to them and say, look, I don't feel comfortable working with that person Mm. says a lot because otherwise you could have been in that really unsafe work environment having to be alongside them.
1: I think it's also worth remembering that although I was young and very shy with very little confidence, I was on work experience. So if I had caused a fuss and was accused of trouble causing or whatever, I wasn't really losing. I mean, I was (laughs) losing work experience, but... You didn't have like mortgages and responsibilities and tied up in it. (laughs) I think for me, it was just like, I cannot bear to be in a room alone with that man. Yeah. That made me feel so ugh. And going to the director who was female, clearly she knew because she had no hesitation in moving me. And I think he had a bit of a reputation, to be honest. But if that was my first week in a paid role, I don't know. I might have been too afraid that I would lose my job. I might have even looked for another job, which would have been awful. But this is what happens a lot, doesn't it? The person who has been put in that situation moves on rather than the perpetrator, which is yeah. not, not good.
0: No, it shows flaws within the system and way things work. But it is usually a case of you're trying to protect yourself and you're doing what's in your control, which yeah. isn't always speaking to someone and getting help within that organisation. And I think that is the beauty of being freelance, of being your own boss and getting to kind of choose how you work and who you work with.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's so liberating. It can be frightening at times when we have quiet months and then all of a sudden we're over capacity. And so you, you never get that, oh, I'll do like 40 hours a week every week and I'll have five weeks off. a year. You can't do that. You're either low on income and therefore spending all of your spare time around the work that you do have on business development trying to get out there and get extra work or when it comes in you're too frightened to say no to it so you end up doing a 60-hour week and not getting any respite and think well I'll just get through this and then it'll be okay but I do love it I do find it liberating yeah I love the choice I love the The freedom that I have to work however I want, as long as I'm delivering for my
0: clients, the politics is pretty much not there. It's nice, isn't it? How do you navigate that, those kind of like lulls and highs? How do you find it?
1: Well, I used to be really good at it. And when I first started, I was so strict with how much money I put away for tax purposes. And I've got a little bit lax with that. So now I am like frantically trying to make sure that I've got enough for the next couple of tax payments, rather than having a little buffer. So you've
0: done the opposite to what most people do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got worse at it. So <laughs> I used to have a little buffer. And so if I had quiet times, I would just enjoy the time. I would yeah. use that time to write. Whereas now I'm like, oh. because I've just worked on No Worries If Not, I put time aside. So I wound down a little bit so that I could do my writing. Yeah and then working on the book coming out and everything whilst doing a little bit in the background. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, the book's out. I need to make more money now. <laughs> You've got to kind of balance the two. Yeah, because when you work on books, the money kind of comes in over many, unless you're a really successful author. And there are debut authors who can do absolutely phenomenally, but most authors, it's a side project. And money will come in you'll get royalties but you don't get them usually I said I don't even know when you get them whether it's once a year or once every six months so you do need to make sure you've got that day job ticking over.
0: I think there is this myth that if you're an author you just spend all your days in a lush cabin writing and it's really peaceful but in actual fact the reality is chaos like you're trying to balance writing, carving out time for that while still doing a responsible adult thing of paying bills and whatever else you've got going on. Yeah, so one thing I do
1: is that if ever I go on little writing retreats, to be honest, even though writing is a job, you know, and I've written five books and I have been paid for them, actually I spend my holiday time doing the bulk of my writing. So yeah, it is really hard. But it's
0: nice to also know that you are living doing something you love. Yeah. And being able to spend your time on that. Like, that's something that I've recognized recently and been really grateful for is that as a child, I love to write. I would write stories, poems, I try and write books. I can remember one book that I was trying to write as a kid, and it was like a murder mystery book. Typical me, like, that's what I love to read now. As a kid, that's what I love to do. And then, high school age, I was like, oh, maybe I could be a journalist. Yeah. Thinking that was the only way I could actually make a living as a writer. And then you fast forward around today and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool that today I get paid to write, which as a kid is what I love to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for you, do you find that having your own projects to work on that for you and not for a client, it still gives you that creative outlet that you get from writing? The stuff that I write for me? Yeah. yeah so like when you're writing 27 Club and Park Life, do you find that fulfills you creatively? Yeah, oh that I mean that's
1: where a lot of my creative energy goes and comes from. I suppose it's self-generating in a way. Because I work with so many different clients in so many different areas. And I love it when you get a challenge where you've got to write some really powerful, engaging copy about something that on first glance looks a bit dull. Yeah. And I love getting into it and learning new things, learning about different people's careers or jobs or whatever careers and jobs same kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean just learning about a new sector and writing about it I find that really satisfying sometimes when you've got a really powerful story already you don't have to do a lot of crafting to it you're basically just helping the storyteller the person whose story is just get it written down but you know it's kind of already there you're just ordering it editing it But yeah, when you've got to really look at what is the reader going to get out of this story? How can I make the reader sit up and go, oh, never thought of that. That is quite good fun
0: creatively. It's nice to put your mark on it and the person who's reading it, making sure they get something out of it. Yeah. You get to kind of just sit there like tinkering.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I do. I, I love it. I get a lot out of so many different types of writing. And I like to write comedy, but I write some darker stuff as well. And I've played around with short stories and stuff. Yeah, I don't think you need to pigeonhole yourself as a writer, do you?
0: No, I think that's really important that you can just see what comes to you. Like, just yeah. go with the flow. I think you said at the beginning, when you started writing fiction, at first you were like, oh, well, who am I to write fiction? Yeah. Yeah. And in actual fact, then you were like, actually, do you know what? Who am I to not write fiction? Like, yeah, exactly. Just go for it. Why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. I feel that's a really nice note to end on but before you go is there anything else you want to add anything you want to chat about or tell us about that you've got in the works
1: oh gosh well obviously no worries if not if anybody wants to have a read of that and let me know what they think and I'm trying to reinvigorate my sub stack at the minute so I'm actually I'm going to be writing more on that and starting more conversation so yeah where can you find your sub stack so I think I'm just Lucy Nickel, or I could be Lucy Nickel author. But it's called Laughing with Words, Lucy Nickel.
0: I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes as well. So oh, people okay. can easily get to it. And then last last question. So something I like to ask people is you have a day of work. You can just do whatever you want to do. What are you going to do with your day? Oh gosh. Well, it depends
1: what kind of day it is. Ooh! (laughs) if it's sunny, I will either be heading to Time Mouth Surf Cafe, sitting outside by the sea and writing. If it's a really rainy, horrible day, and I'm not going to feel guilty spending it inside, I will probably watch Bridgerton on TV, back to back, or some old Silent Witnesses with my cats and drink tea all day.
0: Both of those sound equally cozy. <laughs> I love the sound of them, and they both involve some kind of hot drink, which is yes, perfect, yes, absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me. I've loved chatting to you and catching up and hearing about everything you're working on and all your experiences as well. I'm sure people find a lot of value in what you've said. Oh, so, thank, thank you, thank you. So for having me on. Thanks, Jasmine. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast, or let me know on Instagram at Lofthouse. I'd love to hear from you, and I will see you next time. Bye.